family, good morning, worship. As we've been through this summer, we've been traveling through the Psalms, and if any of you have missed any part of it, or if it's the first time that you're joining us in worship today, you know, you can go onto our website, you can go on iTunes, you can look up Bel Air Presbyterian Church, and you can get our sermons after the fact, and you can download those. We have people, if they're traveling or if they miss one, for whatever reason, they're able to download those. You can listen to it on the go while you're driving, when you're working at home. Uh, know that that resource is available for you. But what we've been doing this summer as we've been going through the Psalms, I've presented this imagery to hopefully help us understand how we're going through the Psalms. I've been saying that, you know, in the same way that a, a DJ, you know, I, I wish I could be a DJ, but I, I can never pull it off. But, you know, I have some friends who are DJs. In the same way that a DJ can draw from their vast knowledge of music, you know, all the songs that they know, all the genres that they know, in the same way that they can draw from it, access it, sample it, in the same way that they can sample music and apply it to a particular moment to match a mood or an environment or a circumstance, the same way that a DJ can do that, we can grow in our knowledge of Scripture and we can begin to draw from it. We can access it. We can sample Scripture and apply it to every moment of our day. In the same way that music is so rich, as if there's a soundtrack for every mood and environment in life, so true is Scripture. There's a richness to God's Word that's actually more infinitely rich than, than music. There's no circumstance, no mood, no, no thing that you'll ever experience in life that doesn't have the, the riches of God's truth that can help give you perspective, that can guide you, that can orient you. Now, as we've been going through this summer, uh, we end today. This is the last Sunday of this sermon series. And I want to give you just, a, just a, another lens through which you could look at the Psalms before we dive into Psalm 103. And you might hear 103. Wait a second. I came in early and I saw on the weekly that you're supposed to preach through Psalm 111. That's one of you. The rest of you are like, oh, I didn't know that. But the one person who's here that you came early and you're like, oh yeah, Psalm 111. I'm ready. I just read it. I'm not going to preach out of Psalm 111. I'm going to do a little remix. I'm, 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 as I prepared this week, I just felt that Psalm 103 just resonated so much more deeply. And through prayer and such, uh, and going to the Lord, I just felt that this is the text that I wanted for us this morning. So before I, I have you turn to Psalm 103, some of you are already there, let, let me give you this, 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 this framework or lens. It was, it was shared by a theologian by the name Walter Brueggemann. And he wrote a phenomenal little book on the Psalms, and he said, you, you know, you could classify the Psalms, which really is the longest book of the Bible. It's the book of the Bible that Jesus quotes more than any other book of the Bible. You could, you know, categorize the Psalms into three categories. There's the first, there's the Psalms of orientation. That's where things are perfectly normal, perfectly fine. It's kind of your normal everyday life. And so there's a lot of psalms when you read through them that talk about God as a creator and how we can give thanks and how we should live our life. And really that's kind of the psalms of orientation. Things are perfectly normal. But then there's these psalms, which aren't very popular in our culture today. They're the psalms of disorientation, where you go from perfectly normal to falling into the pit where things are completely upside down. Now, I grew up surfing. I know what it's like to just be obliterated by a huge wave, only to be swimming, trying to go for the surface, trying to go for the surface until you finally just hit the sand. You've been swimming the wrong way the whole time. There are seasons in life where we feel like that. 
in our relationships, perhaps. Something happens, somebody says something, it can be so small, it can be so simple, it can be so subtle, but someone will say something and all of a sudden, oh, absolutely disoriented. What do they mean? What do they mean by that? Why didn't they put a smiley face after that text? They always do that. They didn't do that this time. What's going on? Maybe it's news that you received from a doctor that completely disorients you. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe you've lost something. I lose my phone all the time. I'm absolutely disoriented. I lose a loved one. I'm disoriented for months, for years. There are psalms that speak directly to that pit-like experience. It's not perfectly normal. You're in the pit. That's a, that's a psalm of disorientation. But there's also psalms that Walter Brueggemann, this, this theologian, says, not orientation, not disorientation, but it's a, one of reorientation. Psalm 103, which we'll read in a moment, is a psalm of reorientation. Life isn't perfectly normal. It's not the pit. It's the pinnacle of existence. I love psalms of reorientation. Talks about crowning you with righteousness, having your youth renewed like eagle's wings. I mean, it's just like the richest language. It's like if CGI could be translated into words, psalms of reorientation would be like the superhero pinnacle of life experiences. But Walter Brueggemann makes this great point. He says, most of us, we live life in the perfectly normal, and we so want the pinnacle. You know, we want the mountaintop experience. And so we do things, we have experiences, we have relationships, we even try to get in with God so we can have those pinnacle experiences to be reoriented, reimagined, this new place, this higher place, maximizing your potential. There's books about it, self-help about it. We want that pinnacle experience, but Walter Brueggemann says that the only way from perfectly normal to the pinnacle of life, from orientation to reorientation, is you have to first go through the pit of being disoriented. Because it's only in that pit, only in that place of disorientation that you will find that God will meet you there and elevate you to a place that you couldn't have leapfrogged to on your own. That's so unpopular to say. In Western culture in 2015 in Los Angeles, that the only way to the pinnacle is to go through the pit. We live our lives trying to avoid the pit. The last thing that we want is a season or a moment of disorientation. If we experience disorientation or life in the pit, we think that we've done something wrong, that God has forgotten us. If we see other people in the pit, other people disoriented, we turn our backs on them and say, whatever they're doing, they must have deserved it. We love being around people at the pinnacle or even just perfectly normal, but people in the pit, oh, stay away. But Walter Brueggemann gives that great truth that is revealed to us in Scripture that we'll unpack today, that to be redeemed, to be elevated, to be restored, to be set free, you have to acknowledge that you've first been in the pit, in jail, in a place of brokenness to begin with. You excited? <laughs> Here we go. Psalm 103, if you have those Bibles, why don't you open them up? It's that red book in front of you in case you didn't bring uh, the Bible with you. It's on page 482. This is Psalm 103, one of the reorienting psalms. 
If you're joining us online, we're reading out of the New Revised Standard Version. I'm just going to read verses 2 through 5 to begin with, and we'll unpack a little bit more as we go on. But this is of David, Psalm 103, beginning in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This, my friends, ends the reading of God's Word. So this psalm of, of reorientation, this imagery of being redeemed from the pit, that redeemer language is rich throughout all of Scripture. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, we see this imagery of redemption. This is at the core of the gospel, that your life, whether you know it or not, whether you are currently in the perfectly normal, in the orienting place, there will be times in your life, there will be experiences, for whatever reason, that you will begin to experience a pit-like experience. That can come from a variety of ways. And last week, if you were here, I shared with you that every single one of us, we're up for auction every week. Now, I remember saying that last Sunday, and people kind of looked up at me, and they thought, what? What do you mean I'm up for auction? I didn't give, you know, permission to Sotheby's. And people texted me afterwards like, what, 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 what do you mean by that? So for those of you who weren't here last week and for those of you that were, I want to share that idea again. This idea, it's true that every single one of us, every single day of our lives, we are up for auction because death owns us. Scripture says that death has dominion over us. And as we go through life, we try to stave off death. We try to avoid all of its ramifications. We try to avoid all the, the consequences of that, the brokenness of this world. So we try to avoid anxiety, avoid fear, avoid dysfunction, avoid heartache. We try to do all these things. And what happens is, is we get these low ball bids on our attention, our treasure, our time, our heart. These things in life that promise that they will free us from, redeem us from these experiences. And so, for, I want you to personalize this. Perhaps you've been in a pit-like experience, whether it's something that someone said, or you lost a job, you lost a loved one. Perhaps you're in that season right now. The walls of that pit are so high you can't even see the light of the sun. It seems like there's no way out, there's no handholds. You have no idea how you got in there or how you're going to get out. Well, people, good meaning, and things will come your way, and they'll say, well, you know, just, just, just get busy. You know, you should go on vacation. Well, what if you try this? This helps me sleep. Well, why don't you just get back in the game? I know she left you, but, you know, just go out there. The West Side's a great place to meet people. These low-ball bids, we get them all the time. Things that promise to redeem us. But the problem is they actually cause us to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the pit. Because we realize that those things don't save us. They don't redeem us. And the word redeem literally means to purchase out of slavery. To free out of enslavement. To literally pay the debt that has caused you to go down in that pit in the first place. 
In fact, in Leviticus, when was the last time you heard me quote Leviticus, by the way? Leviticus 25, 25. There's this great image that actually is given to the nation of Israel. You, this is long before they had bankruptcy court. Long before you could just, you know, submit some paperwork, before you could say, I'm bankrupt, you know, debt collectors, you can't touch me, you're covering the law. Back then, when you went into debt for whatever reason, they levied everything against you. And so people would go into debt and they would literally have to work off their debt as indentured servants, as slaves. And sometimes it would last a year, sometimes it would last 10 years, sometimes it would last a lifetime, sometimes generation after generation after generation was born into this indebtedness, this slavery, having to pay off the debt. And so they saw how much destruction this caused. How hard this was as people fell into the pit financially, how are they going to get out? So they had this little loophole, this little caveat in the nation of Israel. They said, okay, if you have a koel or a goel, I love it. I said gael in the, in the first service and a professor from UCLA, he, he, he texted me in between services. He says, you know, the way you pronounce that was the verb form to redeem, but goel is the word redeemer. Thank you. He, he got it perfect. I texted back. I'm like, thank you. I don't want to make a fool of myself because you would have known that goel and gael, the difference between the verb and the participle, right? I'll show you. See, you knew that, yeah. So there's this word, goel. Let me hear you say, goel. So it's this Hebrew word that literally means a redeemer. And in fact, to be very specific, it was the phrase, a kinsman redeemer. We don't use that language today, 2015. But literally, here's the idea, that if you're in debt, if you're working off your debt, that if you have a goel, a kinsman redeemer, three things would happen. Well, first, they have to be a kinsman. They have to be a relative. This has to be a brother or sister or parent. This has to be somebody that you are related by blood with, somebody close to you. It can't just be anybody off the street. It can't be some, you know you know, bail bond person. It can't be anything out there. It can't be somebody trying to get the rights to your movie. It's, it's a family member. That's the first thing. Second is they have to willingly choose out of love, not to be coerced, not out of, ah, oh, I guess I have to, oh, that, that brother of mine, that sister of mine, that niece of mine. No, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's a relative who out of love, chooses to, and the third thing is to pay the debt on your behalf. To literally say, yes, this person has been a slave paying off this debt. I will incur that debt on their behalf. So make me a slave so that they may be set free. And typically that would only happen if the goel, the, the kinsman redeemer, had the resources to pay off the debt. Very rarely, if ever, a kinsman redeemer, a goel, would actually put themselves in slavery, put themselves in the pit. And so this imagery, this language has survived throughout all the nation of Israel. And so when, when David uses this word, he redeems you out of the pit, he talks about a God who is our ultimate redeemer. And we know, as followers of Christ, that Jesus is the ultimate goel the ultimate kinsman redeemer. 
who though, as in Philippians 2, it says, though in the very nature with God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took the form of his servant. He lived among us. Do you realize that Jesus is God in the flesh? And when he chose to enter into the reality of human existence, though he's fully God and fully man, that in that moment he becomes our brother. He becomes part of the family. He's part of the human race. Do you realize this? That God would choose that. Jesus wasn't born into the family. He chose that. He's existed throughout all of eternity. And we celebrate the incarnation, the fact that Jesus came in the flesh, God in the flesh. He chose to to step into our family. And not out of begrudging duty, he chose out of love to do what? To pay the debt that you owe. Some of you might say, what do you mean a debt that I owe? I thought you were talking about circumstances, experiences. Well, Scripture talks about another pit that isn't just from the circumstances of life, isn't just from loss. But Scripture says that whenever you don't measure up to God's law, then you fall short. To sin literally means to, to aim a bow and arrow at the wrong target. I mean, I've spent most of my life aiming at the wrong things. Whenever I settle for those low-ball bids in life, that's called sin because I'm settling for the thing that is so far off the target of what God so longs for me. Jesus, he sums up the law. He doesn't even go through all the Ten Commandments and all the Mosaic law and all the sermon law. He just says, okay, I'm going to sum up the law on this, that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you do all of that perfectly, you fulfill the law. I fall short of that every single day. And some of you, you know that because I've let you down. You email me and you tell me how I've let God down. Now, some of you, you're like, wait, no, 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 you're a pastor. You have to live up. You have to be perfect. Let me, let me tell you, no human being can live up to that letter of the law. Nobody can live up to the fullness of what God demands. And you might say, why would God do that? That's so, that's so wrathful. It's so hateful. I come here to Bel Air not to hear the guy have to measure up. Well, you don't have to measure up. Yeah, but wait a second. I, I thought that if I don't measure up and if I fall short, then, then what's the deal with that? You see, there's this amazing moment. Open those Bibles back up again. David seems to contradict Moses right here. And Isaiah's going to have to help us out. David says in verse 8 of Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Okay, so David says that. You might not know that he's actually quoting partially what Moses says. Take those Bibles and go back in time to Exodus 34. And as you go back, second book of the Bible, Exodus 34, Moses is there, Mount Sinai, think Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, right? What's the other one? Well, there's 15 commandments, but one breaks. What movie is that? You know that one? 
Which one? Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks. Yes, Mel Brooks. Great moment. Don't think of that one. <laughs> there you go. History of the world. Thank you. So look at this. In, in, in Exodus 34, see if this sounds familiar. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him on Mount Sinai. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. We just read that. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But ready for this? Yet by no means clearing the guilty. Oh, snap. So David talks about this God who is abounding in love, slow to anger. He forgives our sins. Moses says, yes, he'll do that. But the guilty, oh, no, he will not forget those things. It seems like those are at odds. Who's right, David or Moses? I mean, either God is all-loving, which we love, which is actually a much more popular God these days in 2015, or God is a God of holiness. He doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. Which one is it? Is he a God of love or a God of holiness? And Isaiah says, yes. He's both. Check out Isaiah 53. Aren't we jumping around all over Scripture? Isaiah 53 resolves this tension for us. Page 596. I cheated. I looked it up ahead of time. I wouldn't be there that quick. Page 596, chapter 53, Isaiah says this. Surely he was born and has borne our infirmities. He's carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has this picture of Jesus. Who Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And Jesus lived up to the letter of the law, to the T. He loved the Lord, his God, with all his strength, soul, mind, and spirit. He loved his neighbor as himself. He lived a life that we can never live. He deserves to never have to go to the pit. He deserves to go straight to the pinnacle. He deserves to be crowned with righteousness and glory and honor and splendor. He deserves to be on the throne. And yet, what does he do? He chooses to go to the pit for you. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he could have easily leapfrogged to heaven. And he saw that the only way that we would be redeemed, that we would be purchased, that we would get a bid for our life that was infinitely freer than any of the low-ball bids that we get in life, I shared this last week, is that he would go to the cross and he would say, I'm paying it all for you. And here's the amazing thing. 
He doesn't just have the resources as a kinsman redeemer to pay for your debt so that you could be free with him. He says, I'm going to go in the pit on your behalf. I'm going to be enslaved on your behalf so that you may be free. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, why have you forgotten me? C.S. Lewis says the best metaphor for hell isn't just fire and brimstone and all those things that we hear about. It's, it's this. A great way to describe hell is to be forgotten by the one that created you. And the sad thing is, is when we fall into the pit in our lives from circumstances, whether we make a choice or life makes a choice for us, one of the most common themes that I've heard in my pastoral ministry the last 10 years is people will come into my office and they'll say, Drew, I'm in this pit-like experience. Why has God forgotten me? And I look back on my own life and I look at when I was six years old, my parents split apart and got divorced. I look back on that season and I say, God, why did you forget me back then? I look at the season of my life when my brother died way too young of a drug overdose. And I look back on that moment. Our family fell into the pit together. I said, God, why did you forget us? Why did you forget me back then? I think about the many years of infertility that my wife and I struggled with, and I look at that season. I said, God, why did you forget me then? It seems like as Christians, as humans, when we fall into the pit, we tend to think that God has forgotten us, but that's not the truth. You see, the reality is, is that before the foundations of the earth, before you fell into the pit that you fell into last month or last decade or the one that you're going to fall into this afternoon, before you did all of that, before you experienced all of that, Scripture says that Jesus loved you. And that he actually had a plan, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, what a mystery, throughout all of eternity has this plan before all this happened to redeem you out of that pit before the pit even existed. And so know that when you fall into the pits of life, the disorienting moments of life, would you know that God hasn't forgotten you? He actually remembered you long before you fell into it because when Jesus was on the cross, he says, my God, why have you forgotten me? He was forgotten so that you would be remembered. And he defeated death. He not only went into the pit, but he burst forth from the tomb. He is now reoriented in his resurrection body. And I love that. He's on the other side and he looks back and he says, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be scared of. So when you fall in the pit, know that I'm there with you. We look at some people in Scripture and we say, wow, I mean, that was like the pinnacle of faith. But we need to know that before they reached the pinnacle of faith, having kids named after them, schools named after them, that they went through the pit before that. Listen to this list. Some of you have heard this. You, you've, you've helped spread it around the Internet, you know, a thousand times. Some of you know this. Think about this, the pits that these people went through before they got to the pinnacle. Noah was an alcoholic. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was an idolater. Moses had a stuttering problem. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was afraid and arrogant. Samson was a womanizer. Ruth was a pagan. Jeremiah and Timothy were way too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Solomon was a philanderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Job went bankrupt. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. 
The Samaritan woman had five broken marriages. Zacchaeus was a swindler. Peter denied Christ. Paul was way too religious. Timothy was too timid. And Lazarus? Lazarus was dead. (laughs) And yet why is it when we experience those pit moments in life, we say, God, you'll never use me. You'll never never make anything of me. Walter Brueggemann had it so right. You'll never reach the pinnacle of life, even on this side of eternity, unless you acknowledge that you have a God that walks with you and redeems you and purchases you up out of the pit. The crazy thing is is also this. I can look back on that season when my parents split up. I can look at the season after my brother died. I can look at the, the long season of infertility. When I was in that season of disorientation, I couldn't imagine being on the other side. I couldn't imagine anything other than the darkness and the pain and the the awful experience of that pit. And yet God led me through that. And I feel like I'm not even going to fully know what that means until I'm with him in the new heavens and the new earth, but I get glimpses of that. I don't even know why that happened. I wish it never did. Yet for some reason, God is able to use each of those things in my life For some reason, because of the pit-like experience, it changes how I love my wife, the boundaries that I set up, how I pursue her. And as a pastor, the things that I I share in counseling settings and the the compassion that I feel for people with broken marriages, it changes that. I wouldn't have had that heart had I not gone through that pit. So that pit has become a passion for ministry. And God is redeeming that. He's actually using it. And the loss of my brother, that pit experience, never in a million years would I think that God could actually use that as I sit down with many, many people about to talk about the funeral for a loved family member. And I sit down and I say, you know, I've never lost a child, but I lost my younger brother. And all of a sudden, in that moment, for some reason, all of a sudden, there's this connection. What Paul says to the church in Corinth The God who comforts us and shows compassion to us in our time of trouble, he's actually going to enable us to comfort others with that same compassion, that same comfort. The pit experiences can become your passion for ministry. Boy, in that season of infertility, that pit experience, I wish no one would go through that. I still ask God, why do you allow these things to happen? And yet on the other side of that, again, I'm not fully on the other side. I get just glimpses of that redemption, glimpses of that, but for some reason I'm able to let God use me in, in couples' lives who are struggling with infertility. And that's just, that's just three of the hundreds of pit experiences that I have in my life. So whatever pit you're going through, whatever you carry into this room, know this, that God has not forgotten you. But He's entered into the pit on your behalf. He's given the ultimate bid for your life. So you don't have to settle for the other low bids He says, I've redeemed you. I've restored you. And I've watched you, Belair, the many of you who have gone through that season of now reorientation. When you see other people in the pit, it doesn't freak you out. You're willing to step into the pit with them. The Stevens ministry is just one of those things where people who have gone through that season look at other people in the pit and it doesn't freak them out. They're not worried they're going to get sucked in the black hole of the pit, but they can step in and say, me too. 
Again, after the service, we're going to have an opportunity for you if you're interested in, in caring and shepherding those in the pit experiences. If you want information about that, it's in the Discipleship Center right afterwards. But some of you, you're in the orientation mode. You've never been in the pit. You just want the pinnacle. So when other people in the pit, you say, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with that. But the reality is on, under the surface, or you're denying it, or it's going to happen pretty soon, you're going to experience the pit-like experiences. There's going to be other things in your life that will promise to redeem you, to save you. And Jesus says, I've come to fill this pit in your place, to crown you with righteousness. And that's the amazing thing. Jesus alone is worthy of our worship, and he pulls us out of the pit, not just to go back to where we were, but he says, Psalm 103, he redeems you out of the pit and crowns you with righteousness. You become co-heirs with Christ. We'll never fully know what that means until we're with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Timothy says that we see right now in a mirror dimly. We only see in part. We only understand it just in a part. But one day, we're going to see face to face. So my hope and my prayer is that we would be a church that isn't afraid of the pit, that we would know that God enters into it, redeems us out of it, and that when we see other people in the pit around us, that we would have the courage inspired and fueled and by the Holy Spirit to enter into the pit with others as well and to say, Jesus, he is my redeemer. Yes, he lives. He makes beautiful things out of broken things that we're no longer slaves anymore to fear to anything in life. When we see that, we get a picture of that, that Jesus went to the pit for us. It, it causes us just to simply respond in worship. So let's do that now as we turn to him again. Jesus, I know that human words so fall short as we consider the links that you went to on our behalf. But may these truths continue to, to rattle around in our hearts and our minds. And would we, like David, preach to our soul, say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Would we remind the innermost being of who we are that, God, you are a redeemer, that you rescue us, that you, that you save us. You bring us to a higher place. May we trust in that if we're in the pit. And may we be a community that turns to you in this time. In Jesus' mighty and matchless and powerful name we pray. We say together.